0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Great to see you today. I'm so glad you're here. Great to worship with you and great to dive into God's Word with you. And so if you have your Bible with you today, would you please open to the book of Romans? We're going to be in Romans chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have one for you right there in the pew rack in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, I'll give you a shortcut that might help you get to Romans 14. You'll find it on page 1007 in that pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible uh, of your own, we want you to leave here with a Bible today. I want to make sure you have one for you. So we have Bibles at our welcome desk that you can take with you. Or if you just like that one in front of you in the pew rack, take it. Don't ask permission. Just tuck it under your coat and go and be sneaky We want you to have a Bible more than anything else, and so uh, Romans 14 is going to require you to have your Bible open the whole time this morning uh, while we study it together. From time to time, I hear Christian people say a line sort of like this, I wish we could get back to what life was like in the early church. You ever felt that way? Sort of had these romanticized feelings about what life must have been like in the early church. Uh, sometimes, in seasons of frustration and conflict, we want to go back to this time of unity in mission and relationships. But we want to go back to the first century church where they held all things in common. They preached the gospel boldly and they saw great moves of God. Let's just be a first century church. Until you realize that in Acts chapter six, there's conflict in the church over the distribution of food. And in Acts chapter 11, there's disagreement over whether or not Gentiles can be saved. And in Acts 15, there's disagreement over whether faith alone can save a person. And then at the end of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas have such a strong disagreement, they part ways and go in opposite directions. The church in Corinth had so many problems, Paul had to write them a number of letters. The church in Galatia had disagreements about the very nature of the gospel. The church in Ephesus was divided between Jewish converts and Gentile converts. In Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, he called out two women by name who had been at each other's throats in disagreements. The church in Colossae was fighting over holy days and feasts. The church in Thessalonica was dealing with Christians who were deliberately disobedient. Timothy and Titus were charged by Paul to correct divisions in the church. Even the tiny letter of Philemon is all about healing a broken relationship between believers. Let's just be like the first century church. We are! And as much as we have disagreement... And conflict in modern church life, we are just like the first century church. Every single New Testament document deals with the issue of conflict in the church. If you want to find the time in the history of God's people where we live together without conflict, you have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And there, it was only briefly that way. So we have always... Had conflict. We have always had disagreements. We've always needed a way to resolve these things. Conflict and disagreements are many in church life. But there is a way for us to address disagreements that leads to joy and unity together. And the way to do that is not by looking back on some sort of romanticized past, but rather it's by pressing forward in obedience to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 is all about handling disagreements within the church. Have you considered how essential it is that Christian people know how to handle disagreements among themselves? When we think about engaging the outside world, nowadays we're, we, we think always about apologetics and how do we, how do we engage pluralistic mindsets and, and how do we debate matters of, of relativistic truth? But what Romans 14 is going to tell us to do is we need to focus on loving each other well. One of the greatest apologetics is the way people with different convictions and from different backgrounds can gather in unity through faith in Jesus Christ. And so in a world that is fractured by division, in a world that celebrates division, that platforms division makers... The church is supposed to be very different, an outpost of heaven where unity is real, where conflict finds resolution, where we love each other and are united in all that is essential. So if we study Romans 14 correctly, then we're gonna be the kind of church that refuses to divide over non-essential issues, and instead, we're gonna show the watching world the power of union with Christ. Romans 14 gives us four principles for church unity. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans 14. Paul writes this. Accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, And one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand, because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it's for the Lord that he does not eat it, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you... Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness... Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever doubts, stands condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. So this passage we've just read, it it describes two areas of disagreement among the Christians in Rome. And these disagreements involve dietary rules, and holy days. We think maybe it involved Sabbath days. And Paul describes the two people, two groups of people that are involved in these debates. He calls one group weak, and the other group he calls strong. It's essential that we recognize that this disagreement between the weak and the strong is not a disagreement over the gospel, but rather it's about the application of the gospel. Right? Both groups agree that salvation is through faith in Jesus. But what they dis- disagree on is uh, the impact of the gospel on what they eat and how they worship. Now, Paul doesn't explicitly name the groups, but our best guess is that those he calls weak are followers of Jesus who may come from a Jewish background and still carry with them convictions related to kosher eating, and Sabbath days. Uh, those he calls strong would be those who know that faith is through or salvation is through faith in Christ, but they know that in Christ they have freedom in these things. They don't carry those same convictions. Now, which group does Paul belong to? Well, he makes it really clear he belongs to the group that he calls strong. Uh, in, uh, throughout chapter 14, he references the strong viewpoint as his own. And then chapter 15, verse 1, which we'll jump into next week, the opening line, he says, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength. So we who are strong, Paul identifies himself on that, in that group who sees freedom and liberty in the Christian life. Now, when you and I think of weak Christians, we might think of people who are prone to temptation and sin. That's not the case here. These weak Christians in Romans 14 are actually really serious about their sanctification. So much so that their conscience binds them in areas where they actually have freedom in Christ. I imagine that somehow word got back to Paul about this disagreement, this conflict among the Roman Christians. Some Christians felt they should follow dietary laws, others did not. Some were non-eaters, some were eaters. The non-eaters were mad. Their argument was, listen, we know that salvation is by faith in Christ, and that's why we don't want anything unholy to enter our bodies. The eaters are walking the fine line of licentiousness. Those who eat should be concerned about their own holiness, just as we are concerned about ours. And if not, they should recognize how offensive it is to expect us to eat what they eat. The eaters also had an argument. Look, we know that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. And therefore, we are free in Christ to eat whatever we want. The non-eaters are walking a fine line of legalism. They shouldn't force their man-made rules on us. Now, in the modern church, we're not so caught up in diets and days, but we still have plenty of other issues that divide us. And so how should we handle these disagreements That's what Paul gives us in Romans 14, four principles that result in church unity. And the first principle is this. When we're in disagreement with each other, don't judge, but embrace each other. Don't judge each other, but embrace each other. Verse 1 is super important for making sense of the entire chapter. Verse 1 is like the north star of Romans 14. It says this. Accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. Accept anyone who is weak in faith. Now, again, we have to keep in mind, what is, how is Paul defining weak here? He's not defining weak as someone who has a proclivity for sin or someone who is mutilating the gospel by their doctrine or by their life. He's talking about someone who carries a conviction that binds their conscience. So accept that person who's weak in the faith. Don't argue about disputed matters. What does he mean by disputed matters? Well, well, I take Paul to mean non-essential issues in the Christian life. There are some essentials to the Christian life that we must have agreement on. In the membership class, we talked about it this way. We've been talking about it the last couple of weeks. That... Uh, Our doctrines exist on a bullseye of sorts. Think of a bullseye with a a center dot, and then you have two rings around that center dot. And in the church, in Christianity, that center dot is primary theological matters. Where all people who call themselves Christians must agree on those things. These are essentials in the Christian life. There is not room for a difference of opinion. We cannot agree to disagree. To call yourself Christian, whether Protestant or Catholic, you must agree on those sinner bullseye things. For example, salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's sinner bullseye. That's not up for debate. A triune God, that is center bullseye, not up for debate or disagreement. If you don't agree with the doctrine of a triune God, you cannot properly call yourself Christian anymore. You can call yourself Mormon. You can call yourself Jehovah's Witness. You can call yourself any number of things, but you cannot call yourself Christian if we don't agree on that essential item. Now, outside of that essential center are secondary issues and third level issues that are not matters that define Christian, but rather they might put boundaries between churches, uh, between denominations. They're, they're just, they're non-essential matters. So when Paul talks about disputed matters, that, this is what he's talking about. Not the bullseye material, but those second level and those third level materi- issues that are matters perhaps of preference. Or matters of deep personal conviction, not matters of saving faith. Now, these issues are not unimportant. Engagement on these non-essential issues is essential. But it's essential that we engage them in the right way. And we love each other properly as we do. We get a sense of how tense things were in the church at Rome as Paul describes the conflict. In verse 3, he says that the non-eaters and the eaters are looking down on each other. They're standing in judgment over one another. When Paul talks about judgment, he's describing the way one Christian might determine another Christian's worth before God. The non-eater might judge the eater as not caring about holiness. The eater might judge the non-eater as being legalistic. They're both assuming the role of judge over the other and assuming that God is on their side. Uh, Don't we do the same in our disagreements in church life? we, We assume that God is upset about the same things I'm upset about. And that God agrees with my view of things. And that God is ticked with the people I'm ticked at. And that God is lucky to have me on his side. I'm going to straighten this whole mess out. We think the same way as the early church did on these matters as well. But we can't. We cannot stand in judgment over our brothers and sisters in the faith. And Paul gives us two reasons why we cannot judge that other person First, we can't judge them because they already stand in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls. And he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. So he uses this word picture to describe the way, how inappropriate it is for us to assume judgment over our brothers and sisters in the faith. He says, It's like walking into a house that has a staff and you immediately begin to boss them around as if you are the lord of the manor it might make more sense for us if we imagine uh, walking into a place of business and assuming the role of boss so i'm going to start deciding on what you should do i'm going to start dictating to you hours that, that you should work here's here's what you need to accomplish but you're just a customer. You're not. The, they have a boss, you're not the boss. They have an employer, you're not the employer. And so your brother and sister in the faith has a Lord and you are not the Lord. You think that you get to decide whether they stand or fall before you, but that decision is Christ's decision. And guess what? They stand already in Christ. Their justification is complete. They stood before him. As a sinner with nothing to plead on their own. And Jesus Christ, who died for them while they were still a sinner, has received them. And he has caused them to stand before him. So if if Jesus is okay with this one, why can't you be okay with that one? I, I know that that's an oversimplification and relationships and disagreements can be messy and conflict is hard. I know that. But there is hope in every human conflict when we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I have a problem with a fellow believer that I feel like cannot be fixed, I need to examine my understanding of the gospel. It could be that my poor understanding of Christ's work on behalf of the other person is hindering me from receiving them as I should. So I can't judge them because they already stand in Christ. There's a second reason I can't judge them. It's because God alone is the judge. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul makes sure to keep our relationship in view. Five different times in this passage, He speaks to us of our brothers and sisters. These are not our enemies. This is our family we're talking about. And we are not judges over our siblings. God alone is the judge of our souls. Now again, here we need to be careful. Paul is not telling us to to suspend our discernment of what is sin and what is not sin. What we tend to do with instructions against judgment, whether from Paul or from Jesus, is we will swing the pendulum hard against judgment. You can't judge me. You can't tell me what to do. You're not the judge of my soul. Look, this is a true statement. We are not the judges of anyone's soul. But we are not to suspend discernment over what is sin and what is not. What is gospel fidelity and what is not. So this is not opening the door to live your life however you want, according to whatever truth you want. That's not the proper application of this passage. But rather, in disagreement with gospel-believing people, we must not press to win the fight at the expense of the other person. We do not get to judge them as standing good with God or not because of their disagreement with us. God alone is the judge of our souls. And so we ought to expect that in every church, there's going to be differences of conviction. And among those differences of conviction, there is still unity. Because we don't judge each other, we embrace each other. I see it different than you see it. God sees it perfect. We're going to get to heaven and find out we were both wrong the whole time. So right now, I'm not going to judge going to embrace you. I'm going to follow the instructions Paul gives us. In matters of conflict, we're not going to judge, but we're going to embrace each other. The second principle Paul gives us is this, don't press your rights at the expense of love. Don't press your rights at the expense of love. In verse 13, he repeats the prohibition against judging each other, and he tells us, instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. Now, when I think of the term stumbling block, I normally think about temptation to sin. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. This is not a warning against tempting other people to sin. It's a warning against causing spiritual harm to a fellow believer. Paul's not saying that stronger believers are intentionally laying traps for the weaker believers, but. What he's saying is that thoughtlessness can do real spiritual harm in these disagreements. And Paul uses himself as an example here. In verse 14, he says that he knows he has freedom in Christ to eat whatever he wants. But if he insists on his freedom while doing spiritual harm to someone who feels different, then he's no longer walking according to love. Just because Paul feels a certain way about a matter of conviction doesn't mean he gets to enforce that on someone else at the expense of their relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul has a right to eat whatever he wants, but he doesn't have the right to not love the person who disagrees with him. Now, we love to speak about our rights. We love to insist on our rights But following Jesus requires us to lay aside our rights in favor of our responsibilities. And we have a responsibility to love each other. Love is a greater priority than your rights. The last line of verse 15 is striking. Look at what Paul says there. He says, do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. When you're in an argument with another believer, you may classify that person as wrong, as an antagonist, as weak. But Jesus classifies them this way. I love that one and I died for her. I died for him. And if Jesus would lay down his life for that one, then maybe we should lay down our opinions, our arguments, our anger over non-essential men. In fact, rather than trying to win the argument, we should try to lose our life for the sake of the other person. Paul said, do not destroy by what you eat. But there are other actions we could put in the place of eat in this verse. Do not destroy by what you drink, by what you post on social media, by what you slander, by what you gossip, by what you keep score. Do not destroy someone for whom Christ died. Remember what Paul told us back in Romans 12, verse 10? He said, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's our posture. That's our ready state among each other. And when conflict arises, when disagreements come to the surface, and they will then our posture is, I'm going to love. I'm going to outdo you in showing honor, even in the midst of this disagreement. Look, Tuesday night, we have a special called members meeting. And we've got to talk about a really sensitive matter. I praise God that we get to sit in Romans 14 prior to Tuesday night. I don't think Tuesday night's going to go to DEFCON 1. It shouldn't. There's no reason. Well, it's a sensitive matter, but it's, it's not a punch each other in the face matter. But there's opportunity for disagreement in this room on Tuesday night. How will we respond when that disagreement rises? How will we respond to people who are our brothers and sisters? Will we respond in love? Will we fight to win? We can come in here Tuesday night and do our, our business in a way that shows our faith in the Word of God. Or we can come in here and do our business in a way that acts like we've never even heard of Romans 14 and just pull out the foam bats and go at each other. But we've got to choose the better way. We can't press our rights at the expense of love, whether it's Tuesday night's meeting or, or whether it's smaller skirmishes, Quieter disagreements, beef with one another that just sort of rides below the surface of the public knowledge. We have to press forward in love. That's the better way for people who follow Jesus. So, we're not going to judge each other. We're going to embrace each other. We're not going to press our rights at the expense of love. There's a third principle Paul gives us. Don't let disagreements damage your witness. We cannot let disagreements in the church damage our public witness. Verses 16 to 18 turn our attention to the impact of Christian infighting on our public witness. Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, therefore, do not let your good be slandered. So if those who are strong in Rome insist on putting their theological convictions into practice in a way that damages the faith of the weak, well, the resulting division is going to bring criticism from unbelievers and it's going to hinder the progress of the gospel. Nonbelievers will slander the good of the gospel because of the infighting among the church. So it, it makes no sense to be right On a non-essential matter. It makes no sense to win the fight in a non-essential matter only to destroy the evangelistic mission of the church. It matters what non-believers think of us. If their thinking of us is shaped by our fighting of each other, there's a problem. But if their thinking is shaped by our righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, then we're doing what is pleasing to God. Some Christians delight to make non-Christians mad. Almost wearing it as a badge of honor that we would cause offense to people who don't understand the gospel, who don't believe the gospel. Paul says you you gotta tread carefully in those places. It is not automatically a good thing that we would kick off people who don't know Jesus Christ. Especially when the reason for their anger comes from our sinful fighting against each other. A church in conflict repels people from the gospel, but a church at peace draws people to the gospel. This applies in churches. I wonder if this applies in families as well. I, I think it does. What's the impact of fighting among Christian family members on non-Christian family members? What's the impact of fighting between Christian spouses on non-believing children? The non-believing world needs to see us outdoing one another in giving honor to one another. They need to see us submitting to each other, apologizing sincerely, forgiving freely, and loving each other as family. The the world should not find in the church this sort of strange plastic utopia where we have no problems at all, or, or a peace at all costs attitude. That's not what we're describing here. But rather, what they should find in the church is people united by faith in Christ, carrying many different convictions but loving each other all the same we have to pay careful attention to our public witness we're going to embrace rather than judge we're going to love rather than cause harm we're going to seek peace for the sake of the gospel the fourth and final principle paul gives us don't tear down who god is building up in our disagreement we cannot be tearing down those whom god is building up He uses this construction language in verses 19 and 20. He says, So then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. In verse 21, Paul says, It's good to avoid anything that causes your brother or sister to stumble. Again, that word picture of stumbling is not about sinning, but it's about spiritual harm. You're hurting their faith in Christ by insisting they exercise their freedom in an area where they're not ready to exercise freedom. So does this mean that the weaker Christian always wins the disagreement? Maybe we should begin to claim weaker believer status when we disagree with someone else so that we automatically get our way. Disagreement arises. I call weaker believer. You you called it last time. It's my turn to be the weaker. I called it. I get my way. Looks like tacos for lunch. I hate when you call weaker believer. That's not the instruction Paul is giving us here. He's not saying that we automatically default To the weaker believer in every single matter of disagreement or church life. You'll remember that earlier in chapter 14, Paul's instructions for unity and for other mindedness go to both the weak and the strong. Isn't it amazing that Paul doesn't just walk in and say, here's the right thing to do. Hey, non-eaters, relax a bit eat some food, you're free in Christ. He doesn't come in and give the resolution to the problem that way. Paul's more concerned about relationships than who's correct and who's incorrect in this matter. So the the answer is not just automatically default to the, the weaker believer. Plus, when have you ever Classified yourself as the weaker believer. We're always the strong one in disagreements. It's always the bozo on the other side who's the weak one by our estimation. So, no, Paul isn't saying default always to whoever the weaker believer is. We have to be able to challenge each other, correct each other in loving ways, and to receive that in trust. So, the weaker believer doesn't always get their way every time, but the church should be careful to listen. To what non-majority voices are saying. When our elders meet every month for our business meeting, gentlemen, we have to be careful to listen to what non-majority voices are saying in our church. We've talked about this even recently as we've prepared for Tuesday night's meeting. Our church doesn't need us to come in and show muscle. Uh, Our church needs us to come in and show humility and listening and compassion and kindness That's what we're striving for as a church on the whole. Now, when we think about building up and tearing down, we may have an organization in mind, right? So we might think about the church. God's building his church. We don't want to tear down the organization by negative behavior. There's some truth in that understanding of this language. But Paul speaks specifically about people, not organizations. There's a person you're in conflict with. Don't tear down the person whom God is building up. You want to add to that construction project, not bring it to a halt by forcing that person to make decisions that conflict with their conscience before the Lord. So it's vital that we understand this, not, not just as we build each other up for growth. We're, we're caring for the person in front of us, but we do this as a body of believers. This is not just about me and you. It's about us and you. I might have to turn to other people to help me understand my position in a certain situation. Am I responding in a way that's kind and loving? Am I seeing this right? Am I believing the gospel in my disagreement with my brother or sister? All too often, we just remain on our own, isolated, failing to call on the wisdom of the people God has given us. Reminds me of a story of a young police recruit who was being quizzed by his instructor and the instructor asked him what he would do if he had to arrest his own mother. And the police recruit said, call for backup. God has given us each other so that we might help each other Towards peace and building up the body. We want to ask these questions. In this disagreement, am I responding in a way that promotes peace, that's motivated by love? Or am I being selfish or hurtful? I need you to speak this wisdom into me. Asking questions like that is another way how God builds us up. And we may find that there are some disagreements we simply cannot bridge. We're not going to to resolve these things that we have different convictions on. And what does Paul tell us to do in that situation? He gives us a great line in verse 22. He says, Keep it between yourself and God. (laughs) Keep it between you and God. Not every opinion has to be voiced or typed or spoken. Or shared. Just take that to God in prayer. Promote peace. Love your brothers and sisters. As far as it is possible with you, live at peace with everyone. Keep it between yourself and God. And here we'll find unity. So Paul has given us these principles for church unity. And what are these principles? That they are to embrace rather than judge, to love rather than cause harm, to seek peace for the sake of the gospel, and to build each other up rather than tear each other down. Embrace, love, seek peace, build up. This is how we accept one another and don't argue about disputed matters. Being right is overrated. But being like Christ, that's where true power is found. In our homes, in our church, in all of our relationships, we are to love each other with the same value given us by Christ. Who are you in conflict with? Who do you owe an apology? What rights do you need to set aside in favor of love? How can you contribute to building God's people up rather than tearing them down? Romans 14 presses us in some really challenging places. At the end of John's Gospel, we find a dejected Peter. He had denied Christ three times, he saw Jesus beaten and crucified and in John chapter 21 he's ready to give up he's gone back to fishing do you remember this scene Jesus shows up resurrected Christ shows up and he takes Peter aside for a one on one he cooks Peter some breakfast I love that scene Jesus the resurrected Christ cooked breakfast for Peter And he sits with him, and he gently restores him. It's a really beautiful scene. At the end of that one-on-one conversation, Jesus gives Peter this command. He said, follow me. Jesus and Peter stood up. They began to walk. Peter, belly full of breakfast fish, resurrected Christ next to him. They walk, and Peter looks behind them and sees his rival. It's John. And Peter asks Jesus this what about him? And Jesus, in so many words, says this I have plans for him. What's that to you? Follow me. It's as if Jesus takes Peter by the chin, turns him away from his rival, says, look at me, Peter. The conversation has gone this way. Do you love me? I do. Follow me. What about that guy? Follow me. Next to his resurrected Lord, interpersonal conflict still rising to the surface. Did Peter do what Jesus told him to do? He did. And we know that because not long after the ascension of Christ, Peter and John become a powerful team, proclaiming the gospel of Christ in the streets of Jerusalem, seeing thousands of people come to faith, being arrested together, being beaten together, being imprisoned together, carrying the gospel like fire together. Because they followed him. Rather than their hurts, rather than their petty disagreements, they followed him. What about you? Will you take up your cross and follow Jesus? Will you follow him all the way over to embrace your brother or your sister? May we be a church that follows Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, You've heard us talk today about not fighting over non-essential matters. I wanna talk to you very quickly about the most essential matter. It is essential that you know that you are loved by God. It's essential that you know you are loved although you have sinned against God. That sinner bullseye material means we've gotta see humanity properly. We are sinners who have broken our relationship with the God of our creation. And there's nothing we can do to fix that which we have broken. We tear down. We can't build that back up. We need God to do that for us. And so the good news is this. He loves you, and he has made a way for you to be right with him. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who could do this for us. No one else could do what Jesus has done for us. And He died in your place for your sin. He's the sinless Son of God, and yet he died as if he's guilty of your sin. So he died in your place three days later, rose from the dead, and his promise to you is that if you will turn to him in faith, you will be forgiven, rescued, saved, made his child forever. You become his child, you become a part of the family. We are your brothers and sisters. And we march forward in a beautiful unity to the fulfillment of all things. Because you can have reconciliation with this greatest relationship, we can have reconciliation in smaller relationships as well. But it starts with our relationship with our Creator. So this day, do not let that life remain broken, unmended, but turn to Jesus Find your faith in him, put your trust in him, and follow him all the way to your eternity. Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you for giving us this passage. And I'm grateful that in your grace, you give us Romans 14 at a time when our church is not consumed with with serious conflict. So I'm grateful that we get to land here on a day of relative peace. That doesn't mean we just ignore this and save it for another day. It means that even now, there are ways we've got to put it into practice. And so, Lord, help us to believe your word in such a way that we love each other well. We don't judge each other. We don't tear each other down. We build each other up. We recognize our value in Christ. Lord, forgive us where we take petty things and we elevate them to priority things. Forgive us for turning non-essentials into essentials. Forgive us for indulging our rights rather than laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Lord, may we love each other in such a way and be unified in such a way that the watching world would be drawn to you as a result. When everything else around us is crumbling, every division in this world is growing greater and greater, let us be known for our love to one another, a love that comes from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing the story of and praise the one who laid aside his rights for the sake of life. Would you please stand as we sing? Swedish blue 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 blue